This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, April 6, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Cato's Mustafa Akiol believes there is a crisis in Islam and offers a path to resolving it by stressing the importance of freedom, reason, tolerance, and an appreciation of science. He lays out his argument in the new book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance. The book was released today. The title of your book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance, I think it's worth asking at the outset here, in your view, how closed are Muslim minds and what closed them in the first place? First of all, I should say that, of course, I'm not saying every Muslim mind out there in the world is closed. I mean, I'm a Muslim myself. But what I mean by that title is that I believe Islamic thought and theology and jurisprudence have narrowed over time. Uh, There's a certain orthodoxy which doesn't accept values like freedom of religion or freedom of speech or accepts them in in very limited sense. That is why you have blasphemy laws in more than two dozen countries Uh, There are uh, problems with religious freedom in most Muslim-majority countries, not all of them, obviously, and there's a spectrum there, but in many of them. And uh, there are clerics in different parts of the Muslim world, in the Sunni or Shia world, who will say women are not equal to men. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, heretics or unorthodox interpretation of Islam don't have the same rights. They have to be suppressed. Uh, and and in the very extreme end of the spectrum, of course, you have people who commit violence in the name of Islam. They just not believe in blasphemy laws, but they want to go vigilante on it and you know attack a cartoonist in the middle of Paris. Uh, so I see a big need for some re- new thinking in the world of Islam. And I'm not the only one. I mean, since the 19th century, there have been a lot of Muslim reformists, Muslim liberals, Uh, arguing for change. What I wanted to do with this book is that to put all that literature in one accessible volume and a hopefully a moving argument that uh, uh, I can say, look, we have a problem here and this is how we can change some of our attitudes without stopping being good Muslims. I'm not arguing for Muslims to abandon their faith, their religious practices, not at all. I'm just saying we, we can be pious Muslims in freedom, you know, without coercion, without trying to impose our values in the public uh, sphere. What does that look like? And, and what are the impediments to uh, making that happen around the world in you know, various countries? Uh, the book begins with actually a personal story of how that looks like. Uh, I tell how I was arrested in Malaysia in 2017 by the religion police uh, after a conference in which I argued for full religious freedom in Malaysia, which would include not punishing people for apostasy or heresy, which the Malaysians do, you know, through religious police. Uh, And uh, in the the conference, I refer to a Quranic verse, actually a part of a verse, Baqarah 256, which has become the motto of liberal-minded Muslims, if you will, in the past century. It says, la din in Arabic, which means there is no compulsion in religion. But I show that the religion police was unhappy with me quoting that verse because they interpret it differently. 
they minimize the interpretation of that. And I showed how there are some actually guidelines in the Quran or in the prophetic tradition about freedom or tolerance, but how they were sidelined by the medieval Islamic jurisprudence, which is still being kept and preserved. And I then try to show that that Islamic jurisprudence in the medieval ages, where blasphemy and apostasy were capital crimes, came out of a context which the whole world was like that. I mean, the Byzantine laws or the Sassanid Empire laws weren't different. This is just like Christians, you know, um, using the Inquisition for a long time and then at some point saying that this is not actually what the Bible is telling us and, you know, we should accept religious freedom. So that transformation happened in Christianity, not that easily, not that quickly. You know, it happened through the writings of thinkers like John Locke. And I'm trying to argue for a similar transformation in Islamic thought and jurisprudence. So uh, going back to this question over uh, again, what does that sort of Islamic enlightenment look like? And, and what gives you hope that that is likely? What gives me hope is that we are in a very grim era in Islamic history. Uh, a lot of people will say, well, actually, precisely because of that, there is no hope. But when you look at, for example, Christian uh, history and when you look at European Enlightenment, European Enlightenment came out right at the time when a lot of Christians were exhausted from religious wars and persecution. When you read John Locke, you will see he was trying to convince Protestants and not to not to persecute other Protestants and you know tolerate Catholics even to some extent. And I see that the Islamic world is in such a stage. Horrible sectarian wars have taken place in Iraq and Syria in the past few decades. There are oppressive theocracies in Iran and Saudi Arabia and in, in several other countries. There, are, there is very militant fanaticism in Pakistan, which is precisely why a lot of Muslims are also saying there must be a way out of this. There must be a way out of this without renouncing our faith and without you know abandoning our values and tradition but but reconciling them with values that are intuitively <laughs> meaningful like freedom of religion or freedom of conscience uh, and I'm trying to make that switch and I'm showing that well we can make that switch because actually there is this very interesting idea written by this medieval scholar which we didn't notice enough or there is this very interesting fatwa uh, which was very progressive but we forgot so I'm trying to extract, highlight things that are already in the tradition, but which I, I call them the uncultivated seeds of freedom in Islam. I'm trying to how, uh, show how they can help. One important discussion here is, of course, uh, whether reason and revelation, how they work together, You know, whether we blindly follow religious injunctions or whether we try to make sense of them by using reason as a separate category. That's why a part of my book is about these theological discussions of, in Islam about the role of reason, which is precisely what also Christian uh, enlightenment figures were discussing back in the 17th or 18th century. In the book, I also revive certain theologies to promote more tolerance in the Muslim world, tolerance among different Muslim sects, and also tolerance towards non-Muslims. Uh, one idea that I really highlight there is this medieval Muslim doctrine called irja. Uh, it's in Arabic, it's an Arabic term. In English, it means postponement. Uh, and it was a very interesting idea in the first century of Islam when 
Muslims were going to civil war over a political dispute, which ultimately evolved into a theological dispute as well, which is the, which was the very source of the Sunni-Shia divide. I mean, you can say the proto-Sunnis and proto-Shiites were fighting each other. And uh, these reasonable Muslims, these those who defended the Irja doctrine, they said, hey, listen, we don't know which doctrine is ultimately right or which uh, which Muslim, you know, that these doctrines uphold are the right Muslims. But they said, we can postpone this to afterlife to be resolved by God. And in the meantime, live and let live. So that was a very interesting idea in early Islam, which helped mitigate the conflict, Tunisia conflict, the proto-Sunnishia conflict to some extent. But it is a bit forgotten. So I'm, I'm trying to say, well, let's look at the world today with this perspective and and expand it to for expanded for toleration within Islam and of course toleration of non-Muslim faiths, Baha'is in the Muslim world, or you know, Christians or atheists or gays. And I'm saying Muslims may have a right to disapprove certain things, but they should accept the right of those different lifestyles and values in society. What is, as uh, you discuss in your book, what is divine command theory? A uh, very good question. It is one of the two different approaches to the notion of divine commandments, like religious injunctions. Uh, it actually goes back to a philosophical question by Socrates to a man named Euthyphro in Athens, and, and philosophers would know this. Uh, but but here's the here's the main issue. Every religious believer that believes in some divine commandment, right? God says, "Do not steal" or "Do not kill," like ten commandments, and these are great values most of the time. But there is a question, is God saying do not kill because killing is inherently and objectively wrong, or does it become wrong because God said so? Uh, now, if you say it is wrong because God said so, the follow-up thought is, well, if God said something different, everything would be very different, right? Which is how actually militants uh, acting in the name of any religion can find a version of the divine commandment Yes, do not kill, but kill these people who are heretics. They can go and do it without any doubt, without any conscience, you know, blocking them. So in Islam, uh, this issue was also discussed in, in the early centuries. Are God telling us truths, ethical truths that we can objectively know? So atheists would know about them. Any human would know that and know about them because they're in human nature, their natural law and natural rights. Is it like that? Or uh, does God's command, uh, do the commandments of God simply establish value we otherwise wouldn't know? And in the book, I'm showing that early theological discussion in Islam was very important because today the militants or rigid conservatives in the Muslim world, which violate human rights, are thinking in terms of divine command theory rather than seeing the ethical value behind religious injunctions, and I'm I'm saying this is one of the key. Lo- the, this is one of the uh, padlocks on the Muslim mind that we should start to think not based on divine command theory, but the alternative, which is what I call ethical objectivism. That reminds me of this this notion in law of malum prohibitum and malum in se, and that is, uh, it's prohibited because it's wrong versus it's prohibited because we say so. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And in the book, I show this example where actually it is it's it also even relevant to how you raise your kids. I told the story that one day my little son asked, why should I not take my little brother's toy? 
And I could say, well, it is wrong for these reasons. And he would understand why. And he would develop an internal conscience based on that. Or I could say it's wrong because I say so. Just obey. So religion has these two approaches within itself in Islamic history as well. And I'm saying that the, the approach where you understand and, and therefore you can be able to interpret the commandments that are coming from divine are really important. Otherwise, you fall into blind literalism, which is what is happening in many parts of the Muslim world today. And that's why I'm speaking about let's reopen our minds and let's rethink these issues anew. Mustafa Akiol is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance, available now. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 